News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Brett Jensen here with you on this miserable, rainy, and cold Friday night here on Breaking with Brett Jensen. As always, we are going up until 8 o'clock tonight. And the telephone numbers, 704-570-1110. And guys, make sure you follow me on X at Brett underscore Jensen for all the latest and breaking news in and around the Charlotte area. And if you follow me on X, well, guess what? You would have found out earlier this morning that, I don't know, sometime around 1030 or so, that or maybe 11 o'clock, there was a gun at Rocky River High School, a loaded gun found on a student in a student's backpack at Rocky River High School. I broke that news, and I actually did it while attending a press conference at CMPD headquarters. So I was able to almost like two birds, one stone, go to the press conference and then also break news and beat everyone about the school, about the gun at the school over there at Rocky River High School. So that's why I always say, follow me on X at Brett underscore Jensen for all the latest and breaking news. All right. So I want to talk about last night first. We've got a lot of things we're going to get into. I've got an exclusive interview that I had with Chief Johnny Jennings Wednesday night. He was in D.C. meeting with President Biden at the White House with other police chiefs from around the country. And that took place on Wednesday. He landed back in Charlotte at 730. And an hour later, he and I were doing a one-on-one interview. So, um, you know, so but we're going to play that. And then, I again, talking about the CMPD press conference that happened earlier today. I'm going to play some of that as well because I want you to hear it. And, of course, Mark Garrison's got this wild and great story that's probably going to make you want to drive to Cabarrus County. All right, but first, I want to talk about last night. Last night, I had my very first ever Cigar Club event at the Vintage Whiskey and Cigar Club there in Gastonia. It's right there on Main Street, and it was the first time. It's free. It was open. There's no cover charge, no membership to being a club member or anything like that. It was the very first one that we had ever done, the inaugural one. And it was a rousing success. Like I didn't know how many people were going to show up. I think we had like maybe 40 people, you know, send in reservations or something like that and, you know, and try to reserve a seat or something like that. But it wound up being way more than that. And I think somewhere around 65, I think is the number that I was told, somewhere around 65 people showed up and people drove in from Cabarrus County, Waxhaw, Rock Hill, Lake Wiley, Belmont, Lincoln County, Lake Norman. I mean, this was really, really wild. And I got to be honest with you, I did not see that happening. I, I didn't know, like I said, I didn't know what to expect, but I didn't think people would be driving at least an hour each way to come hang out with me and watch me do the show and smoke a cigar, smoke great cigars and have really good food there at the Vintage. And so last night was a really, truly special night and I just did not expect it. And then so, you know, I had Dan Barry on to talk about the District 8 situation. You know, he's an insider there. And I say insider, but he's like a political guru with Union County. You know, he's got the boots on the ground, is, you know, his ear to the train tracks, if you will. He understands what's going on in Union County better than most people. And so I wanted to have him on as we come to the final closing days of District 8. What's going to happen there? What is happening there? And then Lee Brown you know, she drove all the way from Cabarrus County to hang out with me, and her husband was there and her campaign manager. They were all there last night, and that was really special. And so it was really cool to have Lee Brown there. So I, because she was there, I was like, hey, why don't you join me? So she joined me for a full segment, you know, around 7.30 or so last night to talk about, you know, the growth of her as a candidate, the growth of her campaign, and what kind of chances she has. And I will tell you, while it might be a long shot, here's the thing. 
I can tell you that a lot of people think that Lee Brown and Don Brown, no relation, have gained a lot of ground because the big three, Bradford, Balcom, and Harris, have been arguing and going back and forth and that others are, might be choosing Lee Brown and Don Brown. So, it, look, so they came on, excuse me, Lee Brown came on, and that was just a great, great conversation that I had with her. And then while in the midst of talking with Lee Brown, the biggest surprise of all happened last night. The complete biggest surprise of all. I'm talking to Lee. I look over a little bit to my left and glance up, and lo and behold, who is there at 7.40, 7.43 at night? The one and only Bo Thompson. I did not know he was coming. I was stunned, and I'm like, wait a minute. He's a good 45 minutes from home. He's in Gastonia. It's 7.40, 7.45. He has to be in bed in about an hour and a half, and lo and behold, he was there, and he did the last segment with me. And that really meant a lot to me. I had no idea he was going to do it. It's one thing to do it on a Friday. It's another thing for Bo to do it on a weekday, a school night, as I like to say, because he has to be up at so early. I mean, I think his alarm goes off at like 2.30, 2.45 every single morning because he's on air starting at 5 a.m. So he's got to get up, get showered, get his notes ready, you know, then drive to the station, just get prepared. And there you have it. Next thing you know, it's 5 a.m. and you're on air. So him showing up last night meant the world to me. And I, I and I tried to express it to him last night going, I did not see this coming and I did not expect it. Now, full disclosure, I did ask him. I said, you know, Beth's going to ask you about the cigar event and if, if it just smelled like cigars. And I said, I know Beth's probably not the world's biggest cigar person. So I'm just curious what her take is going to be this morning. But, you know, tomorrow morning when we were talking about it last night, what her thoughts were going to be about Bo being at a cigar lounge full of cigars. And by the way, I just love the smell of cigars. And it was so awesome. And being there and Dan Weiss, who is the owner of the vintage in Charlotte, which is right there in Dilworth, right off South Boulevard beside Dunkin' Donuts. And also the one in Gastonia, the newer one. They've just recently opened those doors there. And look, the one in Gastonia, holy cow, is that place nice. And I actually had a couple of friends showed up from Gastonia. And they said they love going there because they think they have the best flatbread in all of Gastonia. And, like, everyone knows there's a ton of pizza places. But when, you know, friends of mine are going, Brett, the flatbread here is ridiculous. And I'm like, oh, okay, awesome. That's great. So great drinks. I know a couple of the bartenders and because they go back and forth maybe between Charlotte and Gastonia. And it was just a great event. And Dan was there. And we had Dan on during the first segment last night. But here's the thing. Last night was so crazy successful that we're going to keep doing this. We'll be in Charlotte. Maybe we'll go to Waxhaw. Maybe we'll go to Rock Hill. Maybe we'll go to Huntersville. Maybe we'll go to Mooresville. Maybe we'll go all over these places and just have a cigar club, whether it's once a month, once every six weeks, once every two months. I, I don't know. We'll just have to play that by ear. This is like all fluid. This is like a learning and process and if you guys have any suggestions on how long and how often to have this cigar club, please email me or email my boss, Mike Schaefer. So again, last night could not have gone better. I got there about 5.45 and I left around 9.45, right, as everything was winding down and closing shop. And again, it was fantastic. And again, thanks to Dan Weiss. His staff was absolutely perfect last night. And I know Ben, the general manager, pretty well. And all his staff were absolutely perfect last night. They were on their toes catering to and trying to get to the needs of, all, again, 60, 65 people that were there last night, and it was absolutely fantastic. But again, thanks to everyone for last night. 
right, so when we come back, we've got a special report from Mark Garrison, one you're going to want to hear, and it's a report that only Mark Garrison can do. I'm Brett Jensen, and you're listening to Breaking with Brett Jensen. Welcome back to Breaking with Brett Jensen on this Friday night, 704-570-1110. As always, that's the telephone number. And guys, follow me on X at Brett underscore Jensen for all the latest and breaking news in and around the Charlotte area. So we all like to eat. We all like going to restaurants. And one of the things that became like a craze, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago was the farm to table, fresh farm to table. And look, a lot of restaurants do that now, little boutique restaurants do that now. But another craze that has been happening as well is people buying chickens in the city, Myers Park, South Park, Ballantyne, Huntersville, buying chickens to coop in their backyard to get fresh eggs. It's like a whole thing. It's almost like it became an urban slash farm slash country slash city slicker type thing going, look at me, we're giving back to the environment by not buying eggs or being animal friendly, but we're still a bunch of yuppies. Now, obviously, that's not always the case. There are a lot of people who, you know, want to have their fresh eggs, and they've been doing that for a very long time. But it's become a thing with generally younger couples that live in the city but have a backyard and want to have their own fresh eggs. Well, Mark Garrison found a place, as only Mark Garrison can do. And so, Mark, tell us a little bit more about this place very close to home and why it's unique. Well, Brad, we'll head out into the country in Cabarrus County and meet a young woman who has created... Well, what you might call the ultimate work-at-home job. People are actually beating a path to her door. Well, the path is a gravel drive. We have a half-mile driveway, so people come on back here, and we have little signs that say, come on, keep coming, because we are further back in the woods. Back in the woods, but every Saturday... Hi, how are you doing today? How are you? Plenty of people find their way down the gravel driveway. I am a regular. Eggs, butter. (laughs) And here at Midland Farms, customers get an up-close look at where their food comes from. Look at that baby. On this Saturday, some brand new baby chicks in the store. Chirping away under a heat lamp future egg producers. These are Americana baby chicks. We hatched them out. Oh my goodness. For Caitlin Blackwell and her husband Justin, this little farm store is a dream come true job. Being able to have people out to the farm, introduce them to goats and chickens and hogs, it's it's really neat. As soon as we discovered you, we were very, very excited. Thanks for coming out today. Let me tell you a little bit about the store. Customers are excited about the farm fresh good eats. So here in our first freezer, we have pork and chicken. Over here, we have our grass-fed beef. All the pork and beef come from right here on Justin and Caitlin's farm. We have local honey. We carry raw milk, butter. We also have our goat's milk soap here. This is how we started our farm. Yes, Caitlin started this down-home farm enterprise not with eggs or meat, but with her handmade soap made from goat's milk. This is Eliza. She's one of our milk goats. I love the goat soap. Some people don't know what goat soap is. They think you wash your goat with it. (laughs) What'd you come to get? More soap. Goat's milk's good for sensitive skin, eczema, psoriasis, and other skin irritations. A nice, luxurious feeling. Well... Making goat soap was a logical career choice for Caitlin Blackwell because she's always loved goats. So growing up, we had a hobby farm here. Just a few chickens and goats. 
Caitlin's father, Jeff, tells me her goat thing started when she was actually about five years old. She was in kindergarten and they said, we want you to bring something for show and tell that starts with a G. And so I thought, well, can't bring a gun, so we'll bring a goat. All the kindergarten kids liked it so much that Jeff says it gave him an idea for a business. So we started doing mobile petting farms, and that was a supplement to a pastor's salary. Yeah, Caitlin's dad is a preacher, but he is also an entrepreneur. All right, you want to see what this thing I do? Yeah. Here on the farm, I watched him crank up his sawmill. Jeff loves shaping fresh-cut logs into all kinds of creations, from cedar mantles to cutting boards. You never know what you're going to see when you open up a log. The beauty is amazing to me. And watching her dad through the years inspired Caitlin. I love just being around the animals. I love working out here with my dad. Caitlin loved growing up on this farm so much that when she turned 21, she just decided this farm would be her life's work. I always had an entrepreneur spirit. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to go out, scratch my own way. I didn't really see any careers that I wanted to do, but I loved farms. So with a lot of prayer, she says God opened the door to buy some farmland next door. And then she married Justin, the love of her life. She met him at a farm supply store. After the wedding, that's when the goat soap idea came along. I found some goats online and I called my husband and I said, hey, I'm gonna go buy some goats. She bought eight goats to start with. <laughs> and I started milking them. And I was like, well, I can make goat's milk soap out of this. Caitlin cooks up batches of soap in her kitchen. The bars then have to sit five weeks to harden. I love Caitlin's goat soap. Use it all the time for our family, for my little kids. The goat's milk soap was a big hit at various farmers markets. That's when Caitlin and Justin thought, well, let's just open a market right here on the farm. Right, 2780. They converted an old garage into a small store. And I had several people tell me, I don't know how you're gonna get people out there. <laughs> but word spread about Caitlin's goat soap and then Justin got busy raising animals to expand their product line. Watch it. Piglets here. This is some of our next pork chops right here and uh, breakfast sausage. Hi, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? Good. So the little girl who loved taking a goat to kindergarten for show and tell Right, you're 37.44. Is thrilled to be making a living right where she grew up. You've been doing well? I have, yes. And making friends with her customers. And we'll be praying for you and your cancer. I'm so sorry you're having to go through that. I just like coming down here, and they're so sweet. They're good people. That's what we want to do is we want to build a place that's family friendly. We love inviting people out to the farm for them to see this beautiful creation God has given us. A little piece of fire heaven here at Midland Farms. Well, Brett, you can Google Midland Farms. They're on Sam Black Road near Midland, and that farm store is open every Saturday morning. Mark's story takes you right there to the farm without the smell of all the manure. By the way, I want to hear that sheep or goat again. <laughs> Come on, you know that's like the best sound ever. All right, so that's obviously a very cool story and a great job by Mark Garrison, as you would expect nothing less from him. And when we return, we're going to hear my exclusive interview with CMPD Chief Johnny Jennings. It took place Wednesday night, about an hour after he landed from getting back from Washington, D.C., where he had spent the day meeting at the White House with President Biden and other police chiefs from around the country. So that's coming up next. But right now, let's swing on over to the WBT Newsroom with Anna Erickson. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT, you're listening to Breaking with Brett Jensen on this rainy, rainy, cold, miserable Friday night. 704 570 as always, is the telephone numbers. 
And guys, make sure you follow me on X at Brett underscore Jensen for all the latest and breaking news in and around the Charlotte area. So Wednesday night, I actually got an exclusive interview with CMPD Chief Johnny Jennings. If you remember, he was on Fox News on Tuesday. He spent most of all day Wednesday at the White House talking to President Biden along with other police chiefs from around the country. He landed in Charlotte at 7.30 p.m. Wednesday night. He and I did an exclusive interview over the telephone at 8.30 p.m. So just an hour later, he and I were talking about his trip to Washington, D.C. and the overriding issue of criminal youth right now. And so here is my exclusive interview in detail and in full with CMPD Chief Johnny Jennings, which took place an hour after he had just gotten back from Washington, D.C. on Wednesday. Chief, it's been a whirlwind week for you so far. You were on national news with Fox News, then you were at the White House meeting with the president, and then you're on Newsmax. Can you just describe what it's like to get all this national attention this week? Well, I, I think it's a, a positive thing, and I'm, I'm very uh, blessed to be able to use my voice, hopefully, to make some changes because, uh, you know, police chiefs across the country have been jumping up and down about a lot of these issues, and it 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 really truly feels like people are paying attention and they're seeing some of the struggles that we have within uh, law enforcement to be able to do our job. So uh, hopefully it'll result in some positive changes and we can see a turnaround, especially when we start talking about juvenile crime and the trends that we've been seeing. Let's jump straight into your conversations with President Biden at the White House. In detail, what were those talks like? Yeah, so it was uh, it was very very positive conversations with me and the other chiefs with the president. And, you know, we really focused a lot on some of the things that we have been able to accomplish within our own agencies to that some, especially some of the agencies that have been able to have crime reductions, uh, and particularly violent crime reductions, uh, also seeing what's working, what's not working. What do we, where do we go from here? Uh, and you know, the president was pretty, um, pretty forward uh, in saying that, what do you need? What do you need from me? Uh, and we were able to give them some frank answers, to, you know, what we need from law enforcement to be able to be successful. I'm talking with CMPD Chief Johnny Jennings in an exclusive interview. Chief, you mentioned you were with a lot of other police chiefs from across the country. We tend to focus on what's just happening here. Can you talk about how prevalent juvenile crime is on the rise all over the country? Oh yeah, I, I can absolutely talk about it. I, I, you know, my peers across the country have been complaining, and it's and you know we talk about raise the age here. It's not simply uh, raise the age because a lot of these other states already had uh, there. You had to be 18 or older to be an adult, and we were the last state to make that change. But um, as I've been mentioning, it's on top of raise the age, we've had such an influx in violent crime and with juveniles. And that's what uh, a lot of the uh, other um, chiefs across the country have, have been expressing as well. And um, uh, the biggest thing is that they're seeing, like just like we are in Charlotte, when you have 12, 13-year-olds killing each other, uh, stealing cars on a regular basis, and a lot of the examples that I've heard are could easily be same examples that we have in Charlotte. Like you have... A, a young man or woman that steals cars and um, simply gets released to the parents, and then the next day they're stealing cars again. And uh, it's just frustration that 
you're seeing with Chiefs and knowing that they're dri- these juveniles are driving a lot of the crime numbers that, that we have to try so desperately to control to keep our city safe. I'm talking with CMPD Chief Johnny Jennings in an exclusive interview. So, Chief, just recently you guys put out the statement about how seven juveniles were arrested for stealing a car and smashing into a gun store and stealing all these guns, and some of them were under 16 years old. I guess this underscores exactly what you and I are talking about right now. It, it certainly does. And that's, you know, and, and we look at that from our perspective on our side of law enforcement is that's what we see all the time. And, uh, you know, certain certain stories get more attention than others. But, you know, we, we have hundreds of those that we can go back over the course of years and just say how in the world are we, I mean, we, we are just completely failing our young people if we think it's okay that they can commit a, a, a violent crime or commit uh, several crimes uh, uh, and be arrested several times and then it's okay just to, put them back in that environment and let them continue doing it with absolutely no circumstances whatsoever uh, and, and, and no accountability for what they've done that certainly doesn't match the crimes that they are committing uh, for uh, what they have to, you know, how they get, how these crimes are getting adjudicated at the end of the day. I'm talking to Chief Johnny Jennings in an exclusive interview after he just returned from Washington, D.C., So, Chief, we know we just talked about that particular crime with those seven juveniles and smashing into the gun store. Was there anything that surprised you about it? So it's always scary when you start talking about firearms being stolen because when someone's stealing a firearm, they're not stealing a firearm so they can go hunting or that they can have a firearm at their house for safety. Those firearms are being stolen because they want to commit uh, criminal activity. And that's what's concerning. So when you have young people uh, that can break into uh, break into a, a, a firearm sales store and steal that many firearms, um, and and simply you know we we're able to cover a, a lot of them, but there's still some out on the streets. And those crime those firearms are going to be involved in crime, and that's what we'll see them again at some point, whether it's in Charlotte or anywhere else in the country because they're being stolen so that they can be used in the commission of a crime. Uh, and, and I worry about uh, young people who think that uh, that's okay to go in and steal firearms and then to uh, sell them or to pass them along or whatever they're doing with them. I know funding has been a big topic from it, be it local or state or at the federal level. And there's been a lot of talk lately about the funding or lack thereof for the jail North situation with the juvenile detention center up in Huntersville. How important is that juvenile detention center to Charlotte? Well, you know, it, it's not simply Charlotte. It's it's the entire surrounding area. Charlotte needs it very bad. I mean, I think that to think that we're the largest county in the state and we have to take um, take juveniles that we ha- get detention orders on to a neighboring county does not make a lot of sense to me. I, I've had the conversation uh, with Sheriff McFadden, and he agrees. He's, he, he wants to not only reopen the facility, but to make it the best in the country uh, and to have the programs that I keep talking about. Not, It's not about just putting kids in detention and, and locking them in a room. Uh, it's, a, it's about making sure that they have uh, everything necessary to become, um, to turn their lives around and become better citizens. So uh, if we can get that funding and pay the people 
at work in there, the juvenile detention officers, and all of them need to need to make the, enough money to make a good living, uh, so that those are incentives to be able to pe- have good people work those jobs. And I think that's very important. So we have to make that huge investment uh, because I really, at the end of the day, this is a lot bigger than just me or the the police department. Uh, it, this is our society that we're talking about and our young people and our future. Wrapping up here with CMPD Chief Johnny Jennings in an exclusive interview after he had just returned from his trip in Washington, D.C. to the White House. So, Chief, are you getting enough help from the Charlotte City Council and the District Attorney, Spencer Merriweather? Yeah, I have a I have such a, a good relationship with with City Council and our District Attorney uh, Spencer Merriweather. Um, their hands are tied as well. I mean, you again, we there's very little you can do if you don't have the the funding and the backing from the state and the resources that are sent here. Uh, when when we raised the age in 2019, there there were not additional resources that were put into place to handle simply the influx of the um, young people that we're going to start, that we started seeing in the juvenile court system. And, and that, that really makes no sense to me that we're, we weren't prepared uh, simply for that, much less for the increase in juvenile crime we're seeing even without raise the age. So, um, you know, they, they're limited. They, uh, I, I'm sure if they could snap a finger just like I could and, and make everything uh, right, then they would do it. I know our city council is looking at taking ownership in some of this, and that's that's absolutely uh, um, a pleasure for me to see and hear about as well. Uh, and our district attorney's in on these conversations as well. That I've been able to have those conversations with him uh, and see how we can make this better and turn this around. We have to be able to turn this around, or we're going to be in a grim state here uh, within a matter of years. CMPD Chief Johnny Jennings, I really do appreciate you talking to me, and congratulations on having such a very prominent week nationally. Oh, thank you, Brad. Appreciate it. It, uh, it, It's been uh, taxing, but um, I'd do it all again. So there you have it, my exclusive interview with CMPD Chief Johnny Jennings from Wednesday night. All right, so when we return, CMPD actually had a press conference today about a lot of various things. The urination, defecation, masturbation rule goes into effect, as well as having the social areas where you can drink outside on the sidewalk and a couple of other things. So you're going to hear some of these answers from CMPD concerning those very topics when we return. I'm Brett Jensen, and you're listening to Breaking with Brett Jensen. Welcome back to Breaking with Brett Jensen on this Friday night, just before I send you off into the weekend. So earlier today, I went to the CMPD press conference where Lieutenant Kevin Petras gave a press conference about all the things that have been happening in the last week or so and all the things that are starting this weekend and going forward, including everything from the Social District in Plaza Midwood to finally the recriminalization of defecation, urination, and masturbation out in the public area, out in the streets, out in public. And we talked about a couple of other things as well. So here's the press conference with CMPD Lieutenant Kevin Petrus. It's been busy at, I would say, significant week here at CMPD. Uh, Of course, with today being March 1st, as we just talked about, the recriminalization of uh, six city ordinances goes into effect. And so we've been uh, we've been working through that. We've we've talked about that here in this room and and publicly also um, with that vote after city council. Uh, of course, we also had this week another city council vote on Monday that funded 
civilian crash investigation vehicles uh, for that program that, that we're trying to launch from the ground up after the legislation that, that passed last year allowing us to do that. We look forward to the implementation of that, and we are uh, certainly thankful for City Council in, in, in that vote and funding those vehicles. And, and lastly, I think of significant... The first one, thank you for bringing that down. Sure. Um, the regionalization of those ordinances and so forth. I know last time um, you guys were kind of still working through how you're going to approach it. Is it going to be looking at more uh, like violations and things? Or how hard are you guys going to be going to, you know, arrest someone who, you know, uses the restroom on the ground? Yeah, Jesse, I, I think that we've been pretty consistent in our messaging in, in that arrest is not a primary um, th it, this is not something that, that we're going to, you know, we're sending a team out because it, it's after the stroke of midnight on, on March 1st and to, to try to find people in violation of these ordinances. Um, you know, we, we, most of these we, we feel will be uh, in response to calls for service. And we, we certainly uh, uh, are, are not going out there with, with the intent or the purpose of arrest, but rather to, um, to try to gain compliance, to, to educate um, hopefully to offer resources to, if, if we come across a person who's violating one of these ordinances that is in need of assistance to hopefully provide some assistance to that person or resources. And then as a, as a last means, uh, of, of compliance, if we don't get that possibly arrest. Are you concerned that it's going to increase arrest though in any kind of way? I, I think it, it, there's the potential for arrests. I mean, I mean, that's what, what this, that's what this does. I, I don't, I don't see, um, I don't see a, a massive number of arrests coming from this though. Could it be a citation versus an arrest? Yes, it could. It could. Right. Uh, can I ask you about the, the Garinger shootings, um, the kid that was murdered, and you guys made an arrest on that? Um, do you guys have a motive or anything? Or, you know, what, what prompted it, a fight, gang hit, what, whatever? Is there any motive to that? Um, Brett, I, I don't, I don't really have information specific on that. Of course, um, with our homicide investigations, we, we, we did make an arrest that are uh, two arrests of juveniles that, that we, that we put out. Um, but just cause we make those arrests doesn't mean that it's the end. It, it doesn't close the book. In fact, it, it, you know, just flips the page to a, to a different chapter of it. Of course, our homicide detectives worked hard to, to develop all that information, put all those pieces together. And, and, and now it's going to be with the district attorney's office. Um, but you know, I, I, I hesitate to speak to speak any more about it, um, just because of, of the pending criminal charges for it. Yeah. Civilian crash responders. Yeah. How's it going to work? We saw, I believe, a rendering of a vehicle. I know uniforms are coming up and applications going out, if not already. Yeah. But I guess where does it stand? When is it going to go live? And how is that going to work? Yeah. So um, I appreciate the question because this is something that we are very excited about. Uh, in, in 2022, which is kind of some numbers that we used when we were developing this program, uh, we spent over 31,000 hours on qualifying crashes, um, with the number of qualifying crashes being almost 24,000 in that, in that year. So when you think about the, the hours that police officers spent on 24,000 of these qualifying mm -hmm. crashes, um, to be able to to utilize the the law that was passed, implement civilian crash investigators to step in and and, and handle um, these these crashes, these minor crashes that have property damage only and don't involve any criminal activity, is going to be huge for our organization. It's going to be huge for the the police officers who, um, quite frankly, are are oftentimes um, bogged down with with these types of incidents. 
and, um, and, and free them up to work towards the other priorities that we have as a department. So there's a lot of information that we're still working through. Of course, we're standing this up from the ground up. This hasn't existed here at CMPD. Um, it's, it's new legislation. So, so we're going from zero and hoping to get to 100 by summertime, by summertime here in 2024. Uh, the funding earlier this week was was critical in the planning process. It, it kind of um, it, it is going to hopefully take us from from theory or planning to reality soon here in a couple of months. Uh, you mentioned applications, uh, the, the jobs being posted. We're looking to hire 16 folks uh, to fill to fill these roles. Uh, again, as you mentioned, the rendering was was sent out earlier this week of, of what we. Um, of what we expect the cars to look like at, at least at least close. And we're not saying that's final, but at least close. Um, those cars are not going to look like police cars. They're, they're, they're designed to not look like police cars, in fact, um, because these are not sworn um, folks. They're, they're, not, they're not armed. They don't enforce criminal law. They're there to, um, to take crash reports, again, for, for crashes that involve property damage and, and, um, and, and no criminal activity. Community members are sort of worried that if you get in a wreck with an angry person and now it's not a policeman coming, how is that going to be dealt with? Because people are worried people are just going to leave or not be honest or sure. they know they're not dealing with a, a official officer. Yeah, I think um, it's going to be incumbent on us as a department, a big education piece to 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 educate the, the community as a whole about the rollout of this when we get closer to that. Um, but but the, the, these civilian crash investigators will be in direct communication with police officers in the area um, and, and will notify a sworn police officer if there's something criminal, if something comes up uh, where, like, say, there, there could be an intoxicated person that, that they're dealing with that was driving the vehicle. That's, that's a criminal matter, and so they're going to notify a police officer if there's some sort of disturbance. That's the way we envision that to be. Is handled. it dispatch that's going to determine if it's a police officer? Uh, or a yeah, we, we, we envision generally the nature of how the call comes into us will determine that. Uh, in terms of, like, this program, are there other cities that have adopted this that you're going to try and model your plan after? Yeah, so Wilmington, North Carolina, has, has had uh, a program similar to this for, for quite a number of years. Uh, so we're, we're, we're talking to them and just seeing how they, how, how they do it. But um, even more broadly than North Carolina, across the, the country, there are uh, jurisdictions that have implemented this. And, and, and so we are we're learning from, from other folks as we stand this up. Social districts start this week. One of them, at least. Sure. How are you guys preparing to respond to concerns from residents in that area of, quite frankly, drunk people walking around? Yeah, so uh, social districts um, offer some flexibility for, for folks to uh, consume alcohol while they're on the sidewalks and, and in those restaurants, but it, it doesn't extend the flexibility to commit any other crimes. Basically, so if there are other crimes that are being committed in a social district, then those are those are going to be dealt with appropriately. Um, we we will have a, a additional personnel, um, especially here as we as we launch or as we see these launch. Uh, of course, this isn't a I shouldn't say we launch. This is not a CMPD program, but we we, we certainly have have uh, strong equity in the public safety realm, and so uh, we'll have some additional personnel there to to um, ensure uh, safety, overall public safety for, um, for everyone there, whether they're, they're participating by, you know, in, engaging in the consumption of alcohol or whether they're the employees of these establishments or, or whether it's a resident who it was just in the area. But how does public intoxication come in? I know that that technically 
is a citation. Sometimes we've seen it in an arrest. How does that play into a social district? Is public intoxication now legal in that area? No. So uh, when you mention public intoxication in North Carolina, the uh, the the, the exact term is intoxicated and disruptive, okay? So it, it has less to do with um, the the specific intoxicated state of a person and more to do with intoxicated plus behavior being disruptive, generally speaking. So will you guys be there to crack down on that in that area if that happens? We will have additional personnel there to to um, to ensure public safety and handle issues as they as they come about. All right, everyone, that's going to do it for tonight. Again, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. And we're going to do this all over again next week, which, by the way, is Election Day on Tuesday. I'm Brett Jensen, and you've been listening to Breaking with Brett Jensen.